Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Sean Olera. His last name is spelled O-L-A-O-I-R-A. And he just published a book. Title of the book is Setting God Free, Moving Beyond the Caricature We've Created in Our Own Image. I was reading through it today. Very interesting book. He has it laid out in a really fascinating way. It's not his first book. He's also written Spirits and Space Suits, a manual for everyday mystics. Also, Souls on Safari, a guided tour of mystical wisdom. And A Sensible God, Stories and Scriptures of Science and Psychology. And he has a really fascinating background. And he's spent 14 years in, in Kenya as a missionary. He's also a Catholic priest. He has a doctorate in transpersonal psychology. Lots of credential, uh, many more credentials, but he can talk more about that. So, Sean, well, there, welcome to the show. Thanks a million, William. It's good to Thanks. be talking with you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Thanks so much for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name or your new book, can you kind of talk, you have a very fascinating background. Can you talk about your start in kind of spirituality? And you talk about math and uh, how you wanted to kind of fuse it all together. Can you go through that and kind of lead up to what led you to write this book, Setting God Free? Sure. And so, as you can tell by my accent, I'm Irish, uh, raised in County Cork in Ireland. And for the first six years of my life, I lived with my grandparents and uh, my great-grandmother, uh, who was a kind of a Christian mystic. For her, you know, uh, particular Mother Mary was more real, you know, than you and I are to each other right now. And so I would l listen to her speaking aloud constantly to Mother Mary. So I took that as just, that's the norm that the veil is really, really thin between this side and the other side. And then at age six years, I went back and lived with my parents and uh, with my other grandparents, my mother's parents. And uh, my grandfather on that side was, I can only describe him as a druid. I called him Daddy Jim. But he was, um, he filled my head with all the old Irish folklore. He was a great musician and he was a great Irish step dancer. And so it's like these two strands wove together early on for me. I kind of a Christian mysticism, and then a kind of a druidical Celtic uh, pre-Christian folklore. Um, when I went to school, you know, when I finished school, I did a, a bachelor of science degree, uh, majoring in mathematics, pure mathematics and mathematical physics, then spent eight years in a seminary training to be a missionary priest, studying, you know, theology, the history of the church, you know, community development. And then I spent the next 14 years working in Kenya, you know, on... Um, I was a headmaster of a high school for a few years, teaching math and physics and religious education. I worked with famine relief, community development, um, community-based healthcare. Uh, and then I was actually forced out of Kenya after 14 years by the government because of work I was doing on social justice. So I wound up in the States in 1987 uh, to do a PhD in uh, transpersonal psychology. And I finished that in um, 1993. So um, I'm also... Uh, a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California and a, a priest. Um, and so I can, I juggle these two kind of uh, professions at, uh, right now. And most of what I do at this stage actually is from my home. I live in uh, the middle of the forest on a mountaintop in uh, Northern California, about uh, 10 miles from the little town of um, Healdsburg. And so I do most of my counseling and at this stage, all of my preaching through Zoom. So pretty much a hermit at this stage. So you went from one green lush environment in Ireland through Africa and then back to another green lush environment in Northern California. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So I literally, I lived on the equator for 14 years. I literally, I crossed the equator every day at some stage on a kind of a semi-desert area, having lived for, in Ireland, where we get rain 366 days of the year. Uh, so huge changes environmentally and climatologically for me. And you, uh, you've had, you're still kind of practicing priest on Sundays through the Catholic Church and also through kind of a, a ministry of your own devising, correct? Right. And so I, I have a posture for running into trouble because, uh, you know, I'm a big defender of um, human rights. And so I was actually, after 38 years as a Roman Catholic priest, I got a letter on the 4th of October uh, 2010 from the Vatican a two-page letter in Latin telling me that they no longer, you know, required my services and that I should not represent myself as a Catholic theologian or, deny, or have permission to speak or to, to teach in a Catholic uh, university or, or school. And so at that time, since then, I've been the leader of a, a spiritual group called Companions on the Journey, which is a non-denominational group of uh, spiritual seekers. And for me, I'm a Catholic priest now with a small c, because the word Catholic literally means universal. Right. So in some senses, Roman Catholic is a contradiction in terms because Catholic means universal. So I consider myself at this stage uh, a priest you know, by, uh, to a universal audience, to any, any spiritual seekers who are interested in just uh, trying to part the veil and see what's on the other side. Right, so it goes back to your childhood back in Ireland. And I mean, though that must have been quite a shock in 2010. Did you anticipate something like that perhaps happening, or was was it a potentiality due to kind of the way your theology developed? It was probably inevitable because um, I was trying to persuade people. I have a big belief in what I call a personal cosmology that every human being needs to create their own philosophy of life. Now, um, most of us, you know, we we adopt a personal cosmology unconsciously and we access it unconsciously. So most of us, you know, um, we have our philosophy of life based on, you know, what the news media are telling us or what the, uh, you know, the scientists are telling us or what the politicians are telling us or what teachers in school told us. So we've taken this aboard unconsciously. And then when we're in any particular situation, we tend to access it unconsciously. And so I'm a big believer that we have to bring that to consciousness you know, Socrates said very famously at one stage, he said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And the Gautama Siddhartha would call himself the Buddha, which literally means I am awake. And Jesus Christ would say, if the householder knew at what stage the thief was going to break in and steal, he wouldn't go to sleep. And so I'm a big believer that people have to come awake and they have to create their own personal cosmology and has to be able to uh, accommodate all of their own unique experiences of life. And it has to uh, allow them to travel beyond, you know, to go trans-temporal, to step outside of time, to go transpersonal, to not identify with their, what I call the space suit, to identify instead with what I call the soul self rather than the role self, to step outside of time, to go trans-temporal, and even to go trans-rational. And I don't mean irrational, I mean beyond reason. I mean to kind of dig into intuition and imagination and surf, you know, the interdimensional reality so everybody needs to do that for themselves so as a priest i can create some kind of like um, a vision and say you know here's some of the terrain you may encounter but you need to plot this for yourself and create your own version of it because you're 
your experiences of life are different from mine and from everybody else. And so your personal cosmology needs to be able to accommodate your unique experiences of life, you know, and uh, make your heart sing. And so and that, yeah, yeah, please continue. Go ahead. Well, I was so just going to say your your personal cosmology is very interesting because you involve a lot of your mathematical ideas, your psychological ideas, and kind of intertwine those with your theological ideas. So that's really interspersed throughout this the entirety of that book. So I, I commend you for that because you're also an anti. I saw a very interesting things because you're an anti-materialist, but you also had a couple. Uh, you're suspicious about political events. You would fit in with my the people who are my audience because you mentioned a lot of Gulf of Tonkin and a lot of uh, political events. So, right, like, so being I, I, awake also is politically awake. I would, I would say. So I make it's an important distinction, William, between uh, politics and partisan party politics. I think we cannot not be political. We live in a world in which we're, you know, pushed around by a whole bunch of decisions made by people, you know, whom allegedly we've elected, but very, very often are self-appointed arbiters of human life. People who have, you know, um, taken charge of, you know, the resources of the planet. And so when I look at the great, the great teachers like uh, the Buddha or Jesus or Mahatma Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., they had to be political in the sense that they had to be able to teach people and lead people from where they're experiencing daily life. But that's very different for me uh, between that and partisan party politics. I've never joined a political party in my life. I vote, but I vote on particular issues. You know, I don't vote for parties because most politicians in my estimation have been corrupted by some kind of an oligarchical cabal who are interested in gaining control over human beings. So I say, for instance, in my own my, send, my vision statement for myself is that when Jesus Christ said very famously, he said the kingdom of heaven is en masoi. It's a Greek term. And en masoi means within you and among you. So it is both an intra-psychic phenomenon, it's happening within your psyche, and it's also a sociological phenomenon that's happening out in the world. And so there's an inner kingdom and an outer kingdom. And the inner kingdom is the place of mystical spirituality. But if all... If all I am is a kind of a, a, a mystic on a mountaintop, you know, nasal gazing, gazing, you know, I'm just a narcissist. So where the rubber of you know spirituality meets the roadway, meets the roadway of everyday life, you know, that's the outer kingdom. I have to take stances then and what I perceive to be tyrannical behavior or loss of loss of rights, human rights, you know, the dismantling of the American Bill of Rights or censorship, you know, I, I take issue with those. So for me, I'm political in that sense, but I have no affiliation whatsoever with any party. I've never had and never will do. Well, congratulations. That's uh, very commendable. I mean, and you kind of, you had an interesting intro because you spent time defining terms. You use kind of big terms, cosmology, epistemology, uh, some of the words that I didn't know. But I think it's interesting because you're kind of laying the groundwork for the foundation of, of your personal outlook, right? Right. And so as I attempted to write this book, William, my concern was that there are passages in the Bible which are kind of uh, kind of they're talked about as the difficult passages. And they're passages in which God is literally a genocidal maniac. There are no other words to describe it. And so I'm looking at why is this you know, part of our scriptural tradition or what does it mean? So in order to understand the scriptures, 
I have to understand storytelling. I have to understand the evolution of these stories over a period of 1,000 years between 950 BCE, you know, and maybe about 100 you know, AD or CE. And to do that, I have to understand, you know, the human psyche. How does the human psyche work? And so I looked at, I first had to set psychology free in order to set God free. And by setting God psychology free, I had to look at, um, three facets, three philosophical notions. Uh, the first one is epistemology, and that simply means how do we know what we know? And basically we know what we know in one of three ways. Either we believe some kind of an authority figure, you know, a priest told us, or a scientist told us, or a teacher told us, or the mass media told us, or a politician told us. That's one way. The second way is, yeah, you experience stuff for yourself. What's the taste of ice cream? Nobody can explain it to you. You know, is there a survival of consciousness? People who've had near-death experiences experienced the survival of consciousness. And then the third way is we figure stuff out for ourselves. So that's here, that's epistemology. So we have to figure out how do I know what I know? And then the second one is called ontology, and that is how do I know what is true of what I know? So uh, there's a, the, the test is then to discern, faced with any um, proposition, whether it's a scientific proposition, proposition or a, or a spiritual one or a geographical one, I have to make the assessment, do I believe this to be true? And that's called ontology, figuring out, you know, of all of the data I've collected, which data are true and which are not true. And then the third one is, how do I organize the quote unquote true data into a personal cosmology? So that's the cosmological piece. And I use a kind of a, a funny little kind of an image. Uh, I imagine, suppose you were to go to the store and buy a jigsaw puzzle. And you come home, you take off the cellophane wrap, open the box, and tumble all the pieces out onto the table. And you intend working on this jigsaw puzzle over the next few weeks. And then you go to work in the garden, and your young son, he's four years old, he comes in, and he starts messing it around, and there's pieces of the jigsaw puzzle all over the house. Moreover, your dog has taken the cornflakes box and chewed it to pieces, and there are pieces of the, of the cornflakes box scattered within the jigsaw puzzle pieces. And you come back in, and you go, oh my God, how am I ever going to make this jigsaw puzzle? So the first thing is the epistemology. You have to gather up all the pieces, the, the uh, cornflakes box pieces and the kind of jigsaw puzzle pieces. They all look the same. On one side, they're all brown. On the other side, they're colored. So that's the first stage. Epistemology is gathering all the pieces. The second piece then is ontology. You have to separate out the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle from the pieces of the cornflakes box. You know, and that's called ontology. And then when you finally found the real jigsaw puzzle pieces, you have to set about organizing it into the picture that was on the box. And that's called cosmology. So I needed to do that in, before I could approach the stories in the Bible and, and figure out, you know, what are the real, uh, how, do you, how do you believe what you believe, you know, and how do you organize those belief systems then into a, a coherent picture of who God is? So the first stage I did then was setting psychology free. And then the next stage was setting God free. And the third stage was then setting spirituality free, if we know who God is. And the fourth stage was setting setting science free. So there were right. four sections of the book. And you're kind of critical of scientism as a, a structure of materialism. So you you definitely critique that. And this the intro, you've set it as a court case, whether... You know, you put together persecution and defense. And I think it's really fascinating because I learned a lot from that section because 
the Bible is not a literal doc. I mean, I think walking away from reading your book is like, there's a lot of nuances in the priests and, and uh, how people strike, uh, put stuff in the Bible. And you actually had a personal story yourself about talking about uh, referencing this terrible tract in the Bible where it said, let the blood of Christ be upon you know ourselves yeah. and our children. Can you talk about that and how that applies to kind of your interpretation of biblical sections and tracts? Yeah, that's brilliant, William. That's brilliant. And so I came to the States in 1987. And for the first eight years, I worked uh, with the uh, the Diocese of San Jose, uh, living in Palo Alto, and uh, living in a rectory in Palo Alto. And, um, you know, I would say three masses on a Sunday, that there were five churches in the parish, and I moved around from church to church, a kind of a mobile kind of a, a missionary. Uh, and uh, at one stage, I remember it was um, Palm Sunday, uh, probably about like 18, about 19 and 90 or 91, somewhere around this. And at this stage, I had befriended uh, um, a Jewish lady called Arlen Brownstein, who is still my, my, my very best friend after, you know, 35 years later. And uh, she's Jewish, obviously. And her, her grandmother had left uh, uh, Russia about 1915, 1916 uh, to come to the States. And she was only here about six months when she found out that her entire family had been wiped out in a pogrom by Russian Orthodox people on Good Friday, you know, in 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 kind of as revenge for the Jews killing Jesus, and here I am on um, Palm Sunday in full priestly robe, and I'm uh, reading out this gospel, and on that occasion, Ireland's mother ha had come from Florida to visit and had come to the church and was meeting me for the first time ever, and I'm standing at the pulpit reading this story where allegedly. Now, um, Pilate is trying to um, set Jesus free, and the mob is howling, you know, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, uh, Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of this innocent man, allegedly. And then the crowd shout out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And for 2,000 years, the Christian churches have used that as a blood label to justify all kinds of persecutions against the Jews, pogroms of various kinds, a holocaust in the 1940s. And I'm standing on the pulpit, looking at these two Jewish women and this look of horror on their faces. And I suddenly realized, holy God almighty, I've been preaching this for, at that stage, 50 years, never really thinking about the consequences of it. So it led me to a radical re-examination of the effect of words. You know, these stories, most of them are made up, they're teaching stories, but they have this extraordinary effect on people's psyches and on the sociology. So. I did a major uh, re, re kind of uh, reanalysis of my own uh, spirituality, my own religious belief systems, and my own cosmology, and so that was kind of really the um, the uh, the spur to write this book. Right, and I think you use that same kind of approach, looking through kind of Old Testament statements and things like that, like Leviticus or something like that, is so rigid. Like today, like they used to take that as face value, but today. It can't be taken like people don't take it seriously. It's so harsh, right? And there's other exactly. statements like that in the Bible. So what we have to realize is that the Bible is a series of stories. You know, it's all different kinds of literature. And so, for instance, if you open your Sunday newspaper, there's going to be a comic section. There'll be a gardening section. There'll be a foreign news section. There'll be a financial section. There'll be a local news section. You know, maybe a movies section. And as you're reading it, 
without being aware of the fact, as you move from section to section, you're changing your mindset completely. You're not going to read the comic section with the same mindset that you read the foreign news section. But you're doing this seamlessly and you're unaware of it. But people look at the Bible, which is a compendium. The Greek word for the Bible is kabiblia, which literally means the books. You know, if you're a Catholic, there are 73 books in the Bible. If you're a Protestant, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are seven books in the Catholic Bible that are not contained in the Protestant Bible. But there are books of history. Some of them, there's books of poetry. There's books of riddles. There's letters of various people. There are uh, conundrums. There are hymnals. There are liturgical texts telling you how to, you know, celebrate a kind of a ritual or whatever. And they're all mixed together. And to think that you can just open the book at random and dip in and be, be able to understand what it means without understanding what genre of literature are you looking at? Are you looking at mythology? Are you looking at history? Are you looking at ritual? Are you looking at letters? And so people have this totally naive notion that all parts of the Bible are equally, you know, revelations of God. This is a, a compendium of literature that was fashioned over a period of 1,000 years in an ongoing dialogue between faith communities and the and the system and the, uh, the the eras in which they lived, and it's influenced by health concerns, by political systems, by financial considerations, by religious movements. It's it's a uh, influenced by all of these things. You have to understand what kind of literature you're dealing with when you crack open the Bible. Right. There's just so many different things and times. But I think like you, you key into this idea that the people are anthropomorphizing the Old Testament God. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yes. And I, I can. And so in some senses, when you look at the evolution of the notion of God, and there's a long, long, long evolution. When Homo sapiens sapiens arrived, which is only about 70,000 years ago, you know, Homo sapiens arrived 200,000 years ago. There were beings who could think, but they couldn't think about thinking. Therefore, they, had, they didn't have language. Only 70,000 years ago did Homo sapiens sapiens emerge. And that means thinking beings who had language skills so they could manipulate symbols inside their own heads and thus give birth to spoken language and subsequently to written languages. And so once we developed that faculty, the first thing we did was apply it to the existential issues. Where did we come from? You know, uh, who's responsible for all of this creation? When we die, what happens to us? Why do bad things happen to good people? So these existential issues. So we created the best explanations we could. And we called them we called them gods. And there was a, a pure formality of gods at that stage. I believe we created three kinds of gods. The first one is what I call tribal divinities who followed particular tribes around wherever the tribe went, that God went with them. And then there were kind of geographical divinities who were located in specific you know, parts of the world. And if you moved into their territory, you had to pay obedience to them. And then there are what I call portfolio gods. So if you're interested in art, here's the guide you should follow. If you're interested in agriculture, this other guide is better. If you're interested in warfare, this other guy is the one you need. So we we these three different kinds of guides. And then slowly, slowly, we began to boil them down. And Zoroastrianism was the first religion, so we're talking about maybe 600 BCE in Persia, was the first group to boil all these gods just down to two, a god of light and a god of dark. The god of light they call Ahura Mazda, and the god of darkness they call Ahriman. And then Judaism, which was in exile in Babylon at this period, 
you know, learn from uh, Zoroastrianism, and they go back to the land of Israel in the year 539 BCE, and now they uh, they bring it down from two gods to one god, but they've got different names. Sometimes it's called Yahweh, sometimes it's called Elohim. And so uh, there's a, a long, long history of how we created these gods. But we created these gods then finally who are distant, demanding deities, you know, who created laws and expected human beings to keep them and then punish them, punished us if we didn't do it. And the Greeks had their versions of these gods and the Romans had their version and the Celts had their versions and in Africa there were versions, you know, and this was uh, the kind of Middle Eastern version. And so slowly, slowly we came down to the notion of a single god. But that right, and I think just to interrupt, but you made a great point that the early Old Testament wasn't monotheistic. It was, I forgot the word, mon. Is it, uh, uh, right. They, they worshipped a single God, but they weren't believers in a single God. Right. So it's what's called monolatry. Monolatry, yeah. Monolatry, yes. Or the worship of a, of a single God. So even when you, you look at the Ten Commandments allegedly handed down by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the very first one is, first, I am the Lord, your God. You're not allowed to put other gods in front of me. Now, that is not claiming that there aren't other gods. It's saying, we have a deal, guys. I'm your guy. You're not allowed to follow other guys. And you looked at the uh, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, and God is constantly being bent out of shape by the fact that the, the Israelites are following other gods. And he's not saying they don't exist. He's saying, you know, I'm the guy you swore allegiance to. You know, you're going back in your word. So monotheism doesn't arrive for about until about the year 500 BCE for Judaism. Now Moses allegedly lived. I don't believe Moses actually lived, but allegedly he lived about 1250 BCE. So even if he did, monotheism is 750 years after the death of Moses. Right. So I mean, yeah, there's a lot in there. So there are you take apart kind of the different books of the Bible and show that. These these some of these statements are really hard to to adapt to the current days, right? Absolutely. I mean, there are people of their time. Every every civilization at every stage of its history is trying to fashion, you know, a cultural cosmology on the basis of their own unique experiences of life. And for people who lived in very, very difficult situations where there was constant warfare, trafficking, slavery, you know, they had to adopt. They believed that somehow you know, God is responsible for this. And so why is God punishing us? And so there's a lot of different notions of the idea of sin and punishment until we come to the time of Jesus. And Jesus, for the first time ever, begins to speak of God as a one. Jesus would be speaking in Aramaic. He wouldn't have been speaking Hebrew. Hebrew was the language of the of the synagogue. Like if you were raised Roman Catholic before Vatican II, the language of the church was Latin, but nobody spoke Latin anymore. We spoke, you know, vernaculars. But when we went to church, we spoke Latin. Now, the same thing was true for Jews of the time of Jesus. They didn't speak Hebrew as their given language. They spoke, they spoke Aramaic, and they only used Hebrew for synagogue services. So Jesus is using a phrase in Aramaic where he addresses God as Abun. And Abun is often translated as, uh, as father or my, or my father or daddy. But in actual fact, in the Aramaic itself, it's a gender-neutral term. It literally means the birthing principle of the universe, that out of which everything emerged. I use the word source. So source is not, you know, neither male nor female. It's beyond gender. But we as human beings, we are persons. So I live in the middle of the forest. 
the forest is not a person, but I'm a person. So the only kind of relationship I can have with the forest is a personal relationship. So God is not a human being, but we are humans, and therefore the only kind of relationship we can have with God you know, is a personal relationship. But then we try to confer personhood on God. You know, we anthropomorphize God exactly as you said. And so we try to reduce God to ourselves. I use a funny story. I remember a friend of mine one time, she's a big, big cat lover and she rescues cats. And she had this little kitten and uh, uh, it would come in from the back garden and bring in leaves, trap leaves, and bring them in as an offering to her. And then once it brought in a mouse and deposited the mouse in front of her. Now, for this little kitty, is basically trying to tell my friend, you know, I'm making you a member of my species by offering you things that delight me. You know, uh, a leaf or a mouse or whatever. Now, we do the same thing with God. We tend to try to, we're going to delight God by making offerings, you know, that we think God yeah, would love by making God, giving God like citizenship in humanity, making God a person like us. We think that's like um, the greatest compliment we can offer God. And it's pathetic. It's like the uh, cat offering uh, uh, membership or citizenship in, in catdom uh, to my friend. Right. I mean, it's interesting. It makes me think of the Old Testament where they're providing God with burnt offerings. And then God says, I'm so tired of your burnt offerings. Like, it's you know, give me a, a sacrifice, sacrifice heart or something. Right. I can't remember the actual uh, reference of that. But it's, it's, I think that uh, shows what you're talking about. Is that, Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're right on there, William, right on. So that was a passage actually you find in, in Jeremiah 600 years before Jesus. And Jesus says as well, what I want is yeah, compassion, not sacrifice. I want compassion. And so it's this movement from the notion that, uh, that God is a lawgiver, a law enforcer, and a law punisher to the realization that what God really is, God is source of which every single one of us is a holographic fractal. And so the real law, the real legislation, the law of love is written in the human heart. It's not written on, ten, on, on two tablets, Ten Commandments. It's not written in a compendium of legalisms, you know, in, in, in a, a law system. You know, it's written in our hearts. We are, we are holographic fractals of God. Now, so a hologram is an entity that contains the totality of itself in all of its parts. And so every single... Um, Every single created thing is a hologram of God. It's a fractal. A fractal is, a, is a, a pattern that repeats at an infinite number of scales. Like, for instance, if you go from uh, an atom, which has a nucleus around which electrons are spinning, and you scale that up and you have a planet with a moon spinning around it, and you scale that up and you have a sun with planets spinning around it, and you scale that up and you have a, a galaxy with a black hole at the center around which solar systems are spinning. And so in some senses... Every, every living thing is actually a fractal of God. And uh, mystical Judaism will call that netzotzim, the sparks of the divine. So I say that we're bite-sized pieces of God, but that's who we really are. And that's what the law really means. It is the law of one. It is the law of love. You know? And all of the other attempts to articulate laws by writing down prohibitions against X or Y, they're not laws. They're human efforts to try to domesticate God. Right. It's like, I think Paul said, if you love one another, you've fulfilled the law. So he Absolutely. kind of distilled it all down, all the 613 rigid laws of uh, Judaism currently, I think, too, right? right? All distilled to one. So that's a real, you know, tough one for you know, some people to interpret. Right, right. Um, and so you, you have this prosecution defense, the verdict, setting God free from 
are caricaturization or anthropomorphizing God. And I think it's interesting too, because what I was thinking about when I was reading that section is that's one of the big complaints that atheists have about uh, Judeo-Christianity is how harsh this Old Testament God or, or the current God is about other people. Have you heard that argument before? Absolutely. And so, I mean, religion has itself to blame for that because the results of, you know, the results of what we've done to God are deadly. You know, we have created this homicidal maniac. And so people uh, follow this God out of fear, you know, when they do. And when it was safe not to believe in this God, you know, when people were, were no longer being kind of burned at the stake for their atheistic views, then we got atheism and we got agnosticism. And what happened is, you know, not only did we lose, you know, the real God, we, you know, we had people kind of uh, vilifying those, you know, who did understand what the real God was like. And so they're attacking a caricature. So you have materialistic scientism, you know, poking fun at a God-shaped hole in the human psyche, which was created by fundamentalist Christianity that was proposing a, a kind of a, a genocidal divinity as somebody we should worship and, and honor. And so... You know, I, I'm at this stage, uh, I'm uh, trying to dance the dance between rejecting that old genocidal notion of God and the materialistic scientism, you know, which uh, uh, believes that there's nothing beyond the, the physical brain and the, the physical cosmos. And so the last section on, on the book, I dealt with setting science free from its materialistic agenda. And the notion that uh, consciousness is merely an epiphenomenon of neuronal activity. It's a ludicrous notion. And in fact, there's a whole new branch of, of real science coming along now, which is called biocentrism, which is the realization that consciousness is primary and material is simply a, a kind of a manifestation of consciousness. In the same way, you know, if you're watching your television set and if the, on the 13th of February, you're watching the, uh, the Super Bowl, and your television breaks down, the Super Bowl didn't grind to a halt down in LA because the, your TV wasn't creating the Super Bowl. You know, it was just transducing electromagnetic waves into an audiovisual format. But the, uh, the real thing was happening irrespective of your TV set. And consciousness is happening totally irrespective of the human brain. The human brain is simply an antenna, a receiver and a transmitter. And in fact, it's much more like a reducer valve than it is uh, a, a flow, because the, um, the the human brain is so small, this little laptop we carry between our ears, that there is no way that it can grok the entirety of the experiences we're having. So we have to store a whole bunch of stuff offline in the cloud, what Hindus will call uh, the uh, Akashic records. And so what's happening is that the human brain is simply a mechanism to try to retrieve uh, some of these memories. And because it's so small, we have to create the illusion of time. Time is an artifact of human incarnation. And it comes from the fact that the brain is so small that it cannot grok the entire gestalt. So it has to break it up into bite-sized pieces. Like a mother with a six-month-old baby sitting on a high chair and there's a bowl in front of the child and the child is wearing a bib. The mother is not going to give the child a steak and a knife and fork. The mother is going to get, you know, a pablum and break it up into little pieces so the child can feed itself. And that's what time is. Time is an artifice which allows us to break up the entire gestalt of reality into bite-sized pieces that this tiny little brain of ours can sequentially kind of uh, um, process. And so I'm going to lift that. I'm going to lift that phrase from you, Sean. Grok the gestalt. That was good. 
Great. You got some, you got some uh, modern science fiction into the theology. That was excellent. So. Great, great. Awesome. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, you're, they're still learning. You talk about quantum reality and, and things like that. Like, that materialism really has led uh, humanity down a dark path. And actually, when I was reading your book, I saw a similarity in the Old Testament and kind of these uh, the persecutions Christians have had. They're not much different than the Old Testament outlook of, like, they don't believe in us. we got to get them. So right. it, that right. spirit is, if people have that presumption, oh, we're much different than kind of the Old Testament outlook. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a notion, William, that, that uh, history is cyclical rather than linear and that we revisit the same issues on a, on a regular basis. The external circumstances may look a little bit different, but the, uh, the players may be the same, revisiting the same stuff. So in actual fact, the very first word of the very first book the very first chapter in, in the Bible, the book of Genesis, you know, chapter one, verse one, is the Hebrew word breshit. And breshit is always mistranslated as in the beginning. Breshit does not mean in the beginning. It means in a beginning. If they wanted to say in the beginning, they would have said bareshit. It's another form uh, of the word. But they didn't do that. They used the, 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 the word breshit. So it's in a beginning, you know, giving the notion that there may have been many, many, many different beginnings. And Hinduism speaks about that. They talk about the, the Mahayugas, you know, and esoteric kind of uh, mystical, you know, the science will speak about, you know, the existence of Lemuria or of uh, Atlantis, civilizations that were in the same place perhaps as we were and destroyed themselves through their technology. So we may be revisiting the same issues again and again and again. In fact, I had a very powerful vision, or oh, maybe 30 years ago at this stage, where I saw souls stand in front of God or source and volunteer for incarnation. And there was this one great soul whom I call Gaia. And she volunteered and she said to God, send me to that solar system, to the third rock from the sun, and I will set about creating life on that uh, rock until I manage to throw up a life form which is capable of recognizing its own divinity and ipso facto, the divinity of all other life forms with which it shares the planet. And she said about that 3.7 billion years ago. That's the first life on planet Earth. And she came to a place where Homo sapiens sapiens is on the verge of that. We're on the verge of recognizing our own divinity and possibly the divinity of all other life forms. The question is, will we manage to articulate that sufficiently before we destroy ourselves with our technology? And have we been here before? Is this the uh, the nth time that we've been at this place and have blown it n minus one times, and now is this is our, our chance to do it better this time? Yeah, it's a scary thought. It certainly feels like we could do that very shortly. Um, yeah. Sean, we're at thirty eight minutes. Can you take a few questions? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Leslie H asks, does the author reject the vengeful aspect of God entirely? Um, I, I totally reject the notion that God has any kind of revenge. In fact, I'm going to be a heretic in the sense that um, somebody asked me one time, does God forgive? And I said, no, does, God does not forgive. For the simple reason, sorry, my phone is ringing. God does not forgive for the simple reason that God never holds grudges. So forgiveness means that I temporarily hold a grudge and then subsequently let go of it. But God is utterly incapable of holding a grudge. And so there is no violence whatsoever in God. 
So what I'm rejecting is I'm rejecting this caricature that's being created from the human shadow. One of the greatest psychologists of all time is a guy called Carl Gustav Jung. And Jung talked about the notion of projection. And projection is the mechanism whereby uh, in order to understand my own shadow material, I have to project it onto a screen in order to see it clearly so that I may then retroject it and deal with it. And so if you go into a movie theater and you're watching a movie, there are two ways in which you can see the movie. You can watch the screen, which is 40 feet, maybe by 30 feet, and it's very, very big, and it's the illusion of motion and of change and of time. Or you can go up into the projectionist box and take the roll of film and examine it, you know, frame by frame by frame, one inch by one inch by one inch frames. You're seeing the same movie, but you're not having the same experience. And so in order to see what's on the reel, you have to project it and enlarge it. But nobody believes that the action is happening up there. So you can't take out stones and start firing them at the bad guy on the screen. It's not going to make any difference. And so uh, projection is a mechanism whereby in order to understand my personal shadow, I have to project it onto another individual so I can see clearly what's in my own heart and then retroject to take it back in and say to the person, thank you for providing the screen. I know that this is my stuff and I'll deal with it. So when I do that on an individual basis, when I project and I don't realize I'm projecting, it leads to all interpersonal kinds of problems. When we do it as a culture, it leads to prejudices. And when we do it as a species, it, it leads to the desecration of our planet. And when we do it you know, as, a, as a global community, we desecrate God. We've projected our own shadow material onto the sky being and then accuse God of being that person. And so um, am I rejecting God? I'm rejecting that caricature. I'm rejecting that projection. And I'm trying to uh, understand uh, what's really behind the screen. And what's behind the screen is a loving source grandmother. Right. And I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. You see that theme in your book is it just comes back to loving one another, yourself, everybody else. It goes back to that kind of core principle, right? Exactly. That's precisely what it is. So there are two forms of projection, Carl Jung said. He said the shadow is 80% gold and 20% dark. So it's 20% repressed traumata and prejudice, and it's 80% unrealized potential. So we project that part onto God as well. So we claim that God is omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. Uh, and, so, and that's true in a sense. So we're projecting both the good and the ugly on God. But unfortunately, we've emphasized the ugly more than the good. So although we kind of say, oh, yeah, God is good. God is compassionate. God is forgiving. We don't, we don't really act as if we believe that. We, we act as if God is this punitive uh, kind of a creature who's going to give us the thumbs up or the thumbs down at the end of this incarnation and send us to fry in hell for all eternity. Right. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap it up, Sean? Um, I think just what's important for me then is that, uh, as I said, there are four sections to this book. I first needed to understand how the human psyche works in order to be able to understand how people can unpack the scriptures for themselves. And having done that, I had this court case then where I had a prosecution and a defense and God was found to be uh, innocent because the wrong person was on trial. And then I use that to say, now that we've set God free, we need to set spirituality free from religion. So there's a huge difference between dogmatic fundamentalist religion on the one hand and mystical spirituality on the other hand. So I did a whole section on setting uh, religion free. And then the final section was given that my background is in uh, pure mathematics and mathematical physics. I wanted to set science free, you know, from its fundamentalist materialism uh, to an understanding that science, you know, is a way of 
understanding the physical cosmos just as metaphysics is a way of understanding the metaphysical or the mystical cosmos. Gotcha. And where is the best place to get this book, Setting God Free? So I hope it's available anywhere books are available, like the book depository or your local bookstore. It's certainly available from Amazon.com. And it's in two forms there. It's a Kindle version, which I think is about like six ninety nine, and uh, a hard uh, um, a book copy I think, which is like about twenty two ninety nine. So you can certainly get it in, in Amazon. That uh, they'll have it to you uh, within a day or two. And Sean, if people want to reach out to you, where's the best place to contact you? So my my um, my email address is pray for Sean. That's P R A Y the number four Sean at gmail .com. and my website yeah. is. Yeah, pray for Sean gmail.com. And my website is um, spiritsandspacesuits.com. Spirits and spacesuits. And I'll put those in the show notes so if people want to reach out to you for follow up. Yeah, right now your book has 17 five star reviews on Amazon. And again, the title is Setting God Free Moving Beyond the Caricature We've Created in Our Own Image, just published 2021. And the author again is Sean O'Leara, spelled O L A. O-I-R-E. So, Sean, thanks so much for your time. Really it's been it. a pleasure speaking with you, William. Thanks a million. All right. God bless you. God bless, God bless you. you. Stay, Bye -bye. There. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.